Welcome, I'm Huma Gupta. And I'm Gabby Kirk. And this is Environment and Context, a Status al Wada podcast produced by the editors of the Jadalia Environment page. News agencies and international organizations often talk about displacement in abstract statistical terms. For instance, in Iraq, there are currently more than one and a half million internally displaced people. However, today, we will discuss how ecologies of war have produced multiple waves of displacement and have intimately shaped the lives of displaced Iraqis through the materiality of cement. In the early 20th century, British occupying forces and the subsequent mandatory government popularized the use of Portland cement. The developmental projects of the monarchic, republican, and Ba'athist regimes further promoted the production and use of cement, which is an integral component of concrete in infrastructure projects like dams, prisons, and mass housing. More recently, after the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq, the Coalition Provisional Authority built thousands of T-walls and blast-proof wall segments in the name of security though in cities like Baghdad, they often functioned as sectarian borders. Thus, the global concrete industry represented by corporations like the Lafarge Group and local cement factories play an important role in the securitization of space. But these are the more familiar stories of the lives and afterlives of modern building materials in major cities across Iraq. We are speaking today with Dr. Kali Rubai, who will take us to the cement valley in Bazian, which is 30 kilometers away from Soleimaniye in Kurdistan, in order to defamiliarize us from the ways in which we think about cement. Dr. Rubai is an anthropology professor at Purdue University. Her book project, Counter-Resurgency, The Ecology of Coercion, examines how farmers from Al-Ambar province in western Iraq struggle to survive the rearrangement of their landscape by transnational counter-insurgency projects. Welcome, Kali, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you both for having me. Kali, while reading your article on displaced cement, I was struck by your interviews with factory managers and their poetic descriptions of their work in the Cement Valley. One said, in 100 years, this whole range of hills will be flat. Or the one that I really love, concrete is like a slow explosion. Can you explain to us what the Cement Valley is, how you came to find yourself there, and what is meant by concrete being a slow explosion? Thank you for your question. Um, Cement Valley is a place that's nicknamed for its destiny. So in a way, its name is a prescription for its future rather than a description of what it already is. Um, it's a valley that's a combination of privately owned land and common land where people have been grazing and farming for a long time. Um, it's also a valley that's buffered by a hillside of cement limestone. Um, so limestone is really important for cement production. And um, right now, Cement Valley is lined with new and upcoming cement factories that are all in competition to produce as much cement as they can mine out of the limestone there. Um, the valley's also has an important feature for the cement production industry, which is that it's lined with a river or a creek. And that's where a lot of the waste is dumped. Water is an intensive component of um, cement and concrete production. So um, the place itself 
features in my own research as a node of the many different forms of displacement that the U.S. occupation and its subsequent economic policies produced. So um, I arrived at Cement Valley curious to learn about how one of, of many U.S. 100 orders of withdrawal had deregulated and denationalized lots of different industries. Um, so I ended up interviewing a lovely man in, um, in Sulaimania who was the headquarter manager of one of the many locally owned cement factories that had become recently purchased, 51% of the company recently purchased by one of the transnational corporations that are common, um, Lafarge being one of them. And he actually uh, sent me by car with a driver to Cement Valley to check it out and explore and was very eager to allow me access into Bazian Cement Factory, which was at the time under construction. Um, and I also visited uh, Lafarge, which had another factory nearby, and talked to some of the factory managers that you quoted here. Um, one of the striking quotes that I appreciated was an interview with a Lafarge manager, a man from France, who imagined cement as cooling things down, by which he meant um, that walling practices were able to dissuade and cool the kind of protests that he saw upcoming in Iraq's future as popular resistance was becoming um, stronger and stronger. Wow. The, yeah. Um, and so many of the farmers and, and herders who were living in Cement Valley were Kurdish. They were not um, the community that I had been working with, Anbari people who had been displaced to the Kurdish part of Iraq. But they were Kurdish themselves and they'd lived there for a long time and they were being displaced in a different way. Their land and water and air was being polluted by these factories that were barely even operational yet, but already um, leaves were covered in cement dust. The water was thick um, with all kinds of toxins that were running in it and the land was being eaten up. And so um, it was a compounded form of displacement. The industry itself was part of this broader project of corporatizing the extractive industries available in Iraq. And while the oil industry is the one that receives the most focus, cement and concrete is another. Um, and, and one of the things that was so interesting is that Cement Valley was a microcosm that made visible the competing roles of China, the U.S., France, all different kinds of imperial powers that had corporate stakes in Iraq. And the Kurdish authorities had some degree of complicity by leveraging eminent domain to carve out space that enabled Cement Valley to take on the nickname that its future um, destiny gave it. Um, so the, the quote that you mentioned about cement being a slow explosion is both a reference to the material properties of concrete, that cement is produced, it's mixed with water and um, various sized pebbles, and then it slowly dries over time, and then it eventually crumbles and flowers out. And so cement itself becoming concrete is like an explosion in its material process. It's a chemical reaction that expands. Um, but it's also an interesting metaphor for slow violence. It's not like a bomb, but it does a lot of damage to the Iraqi landscape and to Iraqi people. Wow, that's incredible. Um, Kali, I wanted to ask you, though, how did you come to find yourself in cement? Great question, yes. Um, so one of the things that was uh, 
caught me off guard uh, in working with displaced Anbari farmers was the number of them who displaced from their own land, worked as day laborers, um, displaced people who were internally displaced in Iraq, working as day laborers, oftentimes in cement factories and sometimes in batching plants where cement is mixed and made liquid and sent off, um, sometimes in construction sites where they were actually pouring cement into um, brick formation and then stacking it and building with it. And then others actually in the quarries where cement was being mined. And so um, I was pointed to cement and cement production by displaced people who found it integral to their material experience of displacement. It wasn't that cement displaced them. It wasn't a one-to-one -one ratio, but that there was something intimate about the role of cement and concrete in the transformation of their landscape. And so they are the ones that directed me to Cement Valley um, and to exploring the cement and concrete industry as one of the many protagonists and um, allies sometimes in their own displacement and how they navigated the reconstruction of their home. Thank you, Kali. That's, um, I mean, it's extremely powerful that you also have that openness to let your research be directed by people who you're interacting with and who are telling you that this is actually what you should focus on and kind of put aside one's preconceived notions when one steps into doing fieldwork or research. So I, I think that's extremely admirable. Um, one of the families that you mention um, in your work is the Jawad family, who became displaced when ISIS forces opened a dam that flooded their, formla uh, their farmland. In your powerful, sensorial, and thick description of this family's life, you explore their contradictory experiences of being both housed and unhoused by what you call displaced cement. Can you talk to us more about your time with this family and their relationship to cement? Absolutely. Um, the Jawads were the first to introduce me to what I think is a relatively simple truth, that carceral violence has a lot more um, to do with extractive industry than just walls and wall formation. So they really taught me to see the connection between the walls that are built and the way that those walls are made in, this, in the carceral state. So many, many displaced people who had become day laborers in construction also found themselves living in um, the, the, the soon-to-be vacation homes of wealthier wealthier people. So the, the Jawads were in Mirawa Valley, a sister valley of Cement Valley, which is strange to look at. It's a hillside of partially constructed buildings. So it's these semi-structured, semi almost empty cement, almost houses. <laughs> They're construction sites, but they kind of look like houses. And Mirawa Valley... Um, was sort of put on hold in a way. So it was supposed to be a big vacation town and it was only partially built. And so many, many families from Anbar and other parts of Iraq who had fled um, their own homes ended up either living in refugee camps, which were um, miles and miles of tents, or finding themselves in an uh, interesting um, interesting relationship with landlords who would either rent or let them live for free in these construction sites that were house-like but not yet dwellings in exchange for laboring on them. So the Jawad family was one of many that was working day in and day out to build this structure into a home um, under the premise that if they finished, they would have to leave. 
So they were building themselves out of their dwelling and that pushed them into a really interesting relationship with the materiality of their environment, but also the temporality of what it means to be displaced. And um, they, yeah, I kept thinking of Audre Lorde when I was staying with the Jawads. They were literally building the master's house with the master's tools and living in it and um, posed some interesting questions about what it means to work intimately with the master's tools, right? What does it mean to be someone who is completely beholden to another and also provided with the materials to survive under that relationship? So um, they lived in a chemical regime that was required of them to survive by and through their own source of harm. Um, it reminds me a lot of the farming communities here in Indiana, where the chemicals that give them cancer are also the ones that produce the economic basis of their livelihood. That what does it mean to live intimately with toxic others? Um, so the Jawads had a variety of ethical orientations to cement and concrete. One of them was to critique their own complicity, as some of the men also worked in one of the factories that polluted the water they were drinking. So it wasn't just that they were building themselves out of their home. They were also working in a factory that was polluting their water source. And then they also had a strong political analysis uh, about the layers of their displacement and were acutely aware that they were working for a particular cement company, um, 76, which had contracted with the U.S. to build T-walls, which they viewed as instrumental to the sectarianism that ultimately led to their displacement. So they had a really strong and clear political analysis of the ways that they were stuck and the ways that they were displaced, both physically and politically. Um, and they were one of many wonderful hosts that engaged my questions and taught me how to use a predominantly cement-based kitchen and what it means to sleep and live in a construction site and not get bit by snakes. They were incredible teachers and um, a large family that had a diversity of opinions to share about the conditions they were living in. I think that's, for me, um, especially is what's really powerful about your work is that, you know, I think when we think about, uh, like you were saying, the chemical regimes and how these are really transnational chemical regimes, these are transnational corporations, and they're, but their impacts are very, very local. They're very, very personal. They're very intimate. And I think your work brings us down to this intimate household scale, which makes it very hard to feel alienated from these processes or feel that they're happening to some others. And one way in which I think you really effectively do that is talking about the tanur, the household oven that you know has provided fresh bread for Iraqi families for hundreds of years. Um, I was especially you know able to kind of connect and relate to your discussions of the tanur because in my own research on migrant read and mud settlements or saraif in Baghdad, the tanur was a source of anxiety for Iraqi and foreign architects. You know, architects like Konstantinos Eidoxiades who were trying to resettle rural migrants into low-income housing projects in 1950s Baghdad. And these architects felt that the construction of the Nurs in communal courtyards was a vestige of a pre-modern time, which did not belong in the brick and concrete dwellings they had designed to house the modern nuclear Iraqi family. 
But after migrants were forcefully relocated, architects were surprised to find that most people defied their designs and ended up constructing tanurs on the roofs of the row houses anyways. This is just to illustrate how important tanur building was to daily rituals of baking and cooking for many families. And I think in your case, it continues to be for some families. So can you tell us about the figure of Majawad, who um, I think looms very large in your in your fieldwork, um, and how you learned to build a tanur um, with your interactions with her? Absolutely. Uh, it's fascinating to hear about the tenure's presence in your own research and um, speaks to this deep historical trajectory that um, in some ways is unyielding to the conditions of imperialism that people face. Um, one of the things that uh, Ma Juad, who was a beautiful, loud matriarch, um, taught me is that displacement is not Archimedean. It's not where um, you put something somewhere and then it moves everything out of the way, right? Archimedean's displacement is when you put your hand in the water and then the water is displaced by a certain amount and there's a one-to-one ratio of thing to place. And the kind of chemical regimes that people were living in with cement and concrete um, speak to the way that displacement incorporates and includes more than one thing at once in one place. And so different kinds of time can run together, different kinds of materiality can run together. And in a way, Majawad was wrestling with the way that she was going to manage her family in a new context. And so um, she insisted on, uh, this, is a, this is a woman who has uh, many daughters and their husbands and many grandchildren. And so this is like a village living in this construction site. And she was the arbiter of culture. That was her role. And um, she was managing this large group of people. And one of her tasks was to figure out how to um, provision food that was ethically appropriate in her worldview. And so she was making, she was trying really hard to make tanur ovens um, out of the materials around her. And the materials were consistently faulty. So she had a very clear understanding that pink clay from the mountainside would do the right thing. um, And that anything shy of that, everything she attempted was failing to make bread. So um, I think the best example is the one that she tried to make entirely out of cement and concrete. Um, So she would, she would build the tanur shape um, out of, out of mud and, and, and grass and clay, and it was so infused with cement um, and the off uh, offputs of cement, the water, the soil, and she ended up coating it in, in cement covering. And the problem was that when you when you light a fire at the bottom of the tanur and you stick bread to the side of the oven, there's a particular relationship between the side of the tanur, the heat of the flame, and the bread itself so that the bread starts to peel away from the side of the oven at right, just the right time to reach your hand in, snatch the bread, and pull it out. And if the side of the tanur is too sticky or not sticky enough, the bread will fall into the flame and burn, and it defeats the whole purpose. And so um, there was this incredible moment when we were testing the, the cement tanur, and Everyone had been making fun of me at being clumsy at things like making tea or cooking bread. And so it was my moment of like vengeful glee that 
even mom <laughs> to us, even the woman who's most expert at getting bread in and out of a tanur burned her hand just like me. And everyone laughed. Oh, it's, it's like Kali, like you, you know, you're, you're a foreigner, you're a foreigner too. this woman who's in, indigenous to this soil. Um, and it was because the timing, the rhythm, the relationship between cement and bread isn't attuned and and centuries old. And the knowledge that she had about how to salt the edge of the oven um, failed her. her. Her own training had failed her in coping with the materials available to her. And to her, displacement was an ethical compromise that was was presented to her by changing materiality. So she was being displaced, not because she had moved to a new location, but because the very molecules that she was working with were foreign to her suddenly. She was confronted with the foreignness of the tool failing her. Um, and so she, she kept going, she was insistent, and in a way she was the exception that proved the rule. A lot of the younger women in the area were disinterested in figuring out a way of making their own bread. Um, but I saw lots of different uh, attempts at tanurs here and there um, as I as I moved around, and um, for for Ma Juad, it wasn't just about ethics. It wasn't just about displacement. It was about health. It was about making sure her children and her grandchildren were eating right, eating well, and um, she she describes that that children feel the land. Um, through the microbes that they ingest. And that if it's not soil, it's clay. If it's not clay, it's cement. And so if children are going to grow up here in this toxic place that is cement saturated, consuming a little bit of cement and concrete in their food is part of what it means to become emplaced, to resist displacement. Um, and so she had a, an interesting relationship between um, health and ethics and the way that food was, was imbued in the project of making sure her displaced family was not displaced in just one way and that they were able to become familiar with a new hostile environment and actually live in it and through it. And so for her, the Tanur was an important effort to make that happen among so many others. She was, uh, she was a force to be reckoned with and she was gonna insist that the food that people ate was made right where they were living, even if that meant that the food was cement saturated, even if it meant she had to burn her hands, it was part of the project of coping with displacement in a way that was resilient and defiant. You are listening to the Environment in Context series on Status al Wada. This is Huma Gupta. Our guest host today is Gabby Kirk, and we are speaking with Kali Rabai about cement and the materialities of displacement in Iraq. So, Kali, um, you're you know, note there about the way that being emplaced and displaced uh, work together just um, connects so well to work that you have done previously on um, the dual use and indiscriminate nature of cement. These are your words in your piece um, on cement in the Jordan Valley in Palestine. Um, and I just, that piece takes me back to also being in places like Kherbet Samra in the Northern Jordan Valley and the ambiguous nature of um, living in a structure that you know is impermanent, uh, but that symbol being a really, yeah, convoluted one. So I guess um, we'd love to hear about what your work 
in the Jordan Valley tells us about these ambiguities of permanence and impermanence of life under settler colonialism. And particularly with the Jordan Valley in the news as a place of um, upcoming displacement due to the impending annexation threats of the Jordan Valley, how does thinking with cement help us understand the materiality of this displacement or annexation, maybe in ways that challenge the way annexation is being talked about um, in popular media or other discourses right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think when we see cement in general or concrete, and, and just to be clear, cement is the substance that is ground down in a powder form. It often comes in a bag. It can be mixed with water, but then when it's mixed with water and the aggregate and becomes hard, that's concrete. So there's cement and concrete go together. And I think when we see the cement and concrete industry, we need to think about carceral violence. That should be an index to think about carceral violence. And sometimes it's a response to it, and sometimes it's a protagonist. So Portland cement was circulated globally, and it arrived in the Middle East, especially as part of a colonial enterprise. And that genealogy can't be erased from its uses, even when they're defiant uses. So in Iraq, for example, um, owning and operating national cement factories was a big part of nation-based liberation from colonial power, but that didn't prevent it from um, reinscribing the kinds of colonial practices and attitudes that come with a particular material formation. So sometimes concrete structures are leveraged as discursive tools to stake claims, like I belong here, or this is my graffiti. And those claims are really powerful and important. What underpins the material world that makes those claims of resistance possible is a major extractive industry that's backed by huge lobbies and increasingly global corporate enterprise. So um, I think that it's just important to acknowledge the, um, the underpinning material reality of the concrete industry, regardless of the uses of cement and concrete. I know that in Palestine, one of the most interesting um, illustrations of that point is that a lot of communities build with cement and concrete as part of the politics of recognition about being in place, about being permanent. Um, and uh, Nesher cement, which was um, recently corporatized but was nationalized um, at the time of my research, knows this and produces two different kinds of bags of cement. It's the same cement. One has a label for Palestinian consumers and one has a label for Israeli consumers. And one is sold to settlement production and the other is sold to Palestinian villages who are rebuilding demolished houses. And so the cement industry doesn't care about the human politics that metabolize it. Um, and I think that that's an important uh, way in which cement and concrete become dual use, meaning that they can be used um, in a weaponized way and as a form of recovery, etc. So in a way, it becomes the grammar by which discourse about land and permanence is made possible. Um, so I think that um, being aware that cement and concrete are an index of carceral violence and really understanding the carceral as more than wall enables us to be um, critical thinkers about the material evidence provided to us about questions of belonging, place, and time, um, and what kind of stakes are made about the future when cement is laid, uh, a cement foundation is cracked, or a cement wall is erected. So that's a big part of it. Um, you also asked an important question about the relationship between 
um, the way that we think and talk about something like annexation and the way that we think and talk about displacement and materiality. Um, again, I think is an important claim that that Archimedean understandings of displacement that um, you know, when one person moves on top of another person, then that other person is erased, right? This model of like one minus one is zero isn't exactly how displacement works. These are complex entanglements. They have layers and histories that last a long time. Um, not to wax too poetic, but that's kind of how cement works. You take a rock that's old, really old. It has a lot of compressed time in it. And you grind it up and you mix it with chemicals and it becomes something quicker it can be transformed into a different shape. Some people have called it liquid rock. Um, and then it ends up becoming fundamentally temporary. Cement is not a very long-lasting construction material, but it's thought of as that because it reaches into the future. It makes claims about futurity and modernity because of the discourse and advertising that surrounds it. And so I think that, um, you know, Palestine is just one example, but Iraq is another about how this corporate industry um, doesn't really care about the human politics that consume it. And the more um, human conflict and natural disaster in the world, the more concrete is produced and consumed. So we have to be able to account for the way that something that is material um, is also quixotic and um, sort of fundamentally um, almost parasitic as a substance in, in the way that it reproduces itself. I think that this anecdote about Nesher Cement and the other global companies really highlights this ambivalence of cement and concrete as these universal objects um, or of these global objects. Um, and then of, of the people in Palestine and Iraq that are embedded as parts of these global processes and systems while also being, as your stories with Majuad, very intimately ingesting them into their bodies as well. And so um, I guess I wanted to turn a bit more to that global because Palestine and Iraq, we think about a lot as parts of global systems of colonial expansion, imperialism, neoliberal accumulation, but they were also, you know, centers of the world before that, you know, rich histories and, and significant spiritual and, and cultural, you know, power that are global. And so it seems like looking at the materiality of our of your work shows us a bit about how global histories, global modernity, both cemented and buried at once. So I wanted to hear a bit more about these global connections and resonances of your cement and concrete project and anything particularly that surprised you when kind of exploring these like global ambivalences and, and universal, you know, kind of conflicts? Absolutely. Um, a couple of interesting surprises. Um, one of which is that there are lots of anthropologists who study cement and concrete and learning about the different ways that, um, the kind of cultural and symbolic and political valences that cement and concrete have all over the world. One of the things that's most interesting about cement is its ubiquity. It's oddly incredibly local. It's generally not produced and shipped very far. It's usually produced nearby. That's not always true. Um, but it's also sort of universally the same, right? It's like this gray thing. Then it might have different aggregates, but in spite of being... Um, yeah, its universality creates a lot of specificity. And in different places, it means different things. Cement can signal 
um, you know, big construction projects that are unfinished in places like Thailand can signal corruption or failure of the state, whereas in places like um, the 1800s in France, it symbolized um, prisons and was highly boycotted. So there are really interesting ways that the meaning of cement is both highly specific and also universally relevant at the same time. That ubiquity is fascinating. Um, while there are artisanal cement factories in the world, most are either nationally owned or corporate owned, and they're increasingly corporate owned. The cement industry thrives on human conflict and natural disaster, and it often sweeps in as heroes of repair and restoration to seize major government bids to rebuild cities. So one of the things that I did not expect to see is the relationship between corporate concrete and the reconstruction industry and the ways that corruption plays into that, the ways that urban renewal plays in. It's very important, I think, to carefully watch how urban renewal projects, major government-sponsored infrastructure like dams and highways, tend to displace more people than they house, and how the concrete industry operates as a major player in the re reconstruction enterprise. So it's something to watch, not, not only because global connections are ways of seeing or an epistemology of the global, but also because some of these corporations are just global. They're just everywhere. And that's part of how they operate. And I think that those of us who want to do global analyses of power while remaining attuned to the local specificities have to follow the ways that corporations manage power globally and are also culturally specific in their practices. Um, uh, let's see, I just wanted to add a couple other things. Um, another surprise that I think, um, I was more shocked than surprised. One of the claims that people make in Iraq is a claim that I see coming in, in different communities in different ways, and sometimes concrete and cement are part of that story and sometimes they're not, is that while people do want freedom and will fight restrictive structures of violence, um, a lot of people in Iraq described preferring any kind of order to the chaos that, that can come from the collapse. Um, so a lot of Iraqis were saying, look, this chaos that we're living in now with lots of different militias running our lives, um, living in different places at different times, not knowing what's coming next, is a little bit worse than the U.S. occupation. And the U.S. occupation is a little bit worse than Saddam. And so the idea that deconcentrating power or that revolutionary force always ends with an ideal level of freedom um, is, is a bit naive, right? People are, people suffer with chaos. Chaos is, is a source of suffering. And so I often find um, during my field work and in talking with, you know, people here in the U.S. that sometimes um, a world without walls is not necessarily the world you, you want. There are good walls and bad walls. And the build bridges, not walls motto is a bit naive. And a lot of people in Iraq um, were talking about how while they didn't like things like checkpoints or prisons, they preferred them to their absence altogether. So that was another big surprise about the ideologies that underpin carceral violence and the carceral state. A lot of Iraqi men, particularly from Anbar province, were brutalized at checkpoints that employed T-walls as part of the physical barrier that made a checkpoint possible. And in spite of that, said they preferred the order of a deadly checkpoint to the chaos of not knowing 
when and where they might be hurt in another context. And so it is interesting to see that even those who are most oppressed by carceral regimes are often quick to claim them in the absence of a replacement. So I think that those are some global trends to think about, the ways that people do want um, order through walls or order through the carceral, which is an interesting way that we enroll concrete and cement in creating uh, different ideas of what security means. Um, and also the corporate role of repair and restoration and reconstruction and the way that profits are leveraged at the global scale. So I think those are a few. I think this shock of um, the fear of unknowing being a, a, a greater fear, or at least a, maybe a fear that one would want to return to. Um, mm -hmm. I'd rather have a fear that I know than one that I don't. Um, also, um, you know, reminds me a lot of, of, an, of another project of yours um, to, to change subjects slightly, although it's still related on birth, the clusters of birth defects in Iraq. Um, and this work of yours really, um, which is so, so embedded specifically and locally, yet obviously has these global relevances and connections, really challenges existing ways of thinking about gathering evidence. What do we know and how do we know it? Of from the ground up, so to speak, to document environmental injustice or environmental racism. And you've kind of called this this epistemology of responsibility and would love to talk about how you've theorized that from your work in Iraq. Um, and how does this kind of challenge our conceptions, um, talking about methods a little bit of, of what, how do we know what we know? Specifically, a lot of socially just, communally in, community engaged research in environmental justice kind of charges the researcher with going and gathering evidence to prove environmental racism or to prove a war crime or prove these things. How does your, how does your work on birth defects in Iraq kind of challenge these ideas of what we know and what we don't in environmental injustice? It's a great question. Um, thank you for that. I've often found it peculiar to arrive at a place having decided in advance that it is a field site for a research question that I came up with sitting in a classroom or an office. So to me, research is just one instrument of social justice, which means that research questions themselves need to be formed in conversation with a community. So when I started my research in Iraq, I was interested in identifying the material consequences and possible targets of efforts to curtail military violence more broadly. Um, and this interest came from decades-long conversations with Iraqis in the diaspora who were keen to address the material components of the violence that was happening back at home. So um, those who are displaced without moving because the ground underneath them is chemically saturated or materially transformed have a different experience than those who are moved away from their place. Um, and so uh, I guess I had no expectation of being ankle deep in cement clouded water or um, ever being on a podcast with the word environment in the title. That was not where I expected to go. Um, but because an epistemology of responsibility means um, tracing and seeing the way that responsibilities get diffused, it also means um, thinking about what questions are being asked what counts as evidence, and what, and for what audience evidence is even curated in the first place. So all of these things are tethered to the question of what truths are worth seeking and naming. And I think sometimes stories are meant to prove something for a specific purpose, right? Go find out X so that we can add it to the lawsuit about Y. 
Um, and sometimes they're about producing paradigmatic shifts, right? So the case of birth defects in Iraq is not necessarily the biggest or the most urgent medical crisis in Iraq, but what it is is a powerful framework for paradigmatic shifts in understanding how violence diffuses responsibility through bodies and rivers and air. Um, and, and in other cases, I think there's a huge component of uh, cultural anthropological work and social work that's engaged um, and necessary for drawing epidemiological links that can help with a pragmatic project, like finding the underlying causes of birth defects not only helps to form systems of accountability, but also helps doctors figure out what to do about them. Um, and then sometimes the stories and evidence that's gathered is just meant to accomplish something altogether different, um, to simply be heard or to enact emotional revenge. We all tell stories for different reasons and their moral, political, material weight all matter differently. And so I think um, I did not choose my research question because it wasn't mine to choose. I was accountable to a community of people that I did choose, and in being accountable to them, was required to gather different kinds of stories for different kinds of purposes. And that meant taking on different kinds of personal risk, but it also meant taking on questions that I had to then take classes to even be able to understand what I was looking for, right? I don't know how to take a soil sample without training, um, but leveraging the kind of access to research institutions and research training meant that I was able to respond to the directions and political aims of the people I chose as my allies. Thank you for sharing us, um, sharing with us this really powerful kind of narration of an epistemology of responsibility, which I think, you know, is not something that is just helpful to researchers, but really anyone working in these contexts, whether they're working for an NGO or whether they're working for a private company. I think these are questions that we all have to ask ourselves. And I, I know a little bit about um, your work by reading your work that this was not something that you just arrived to, right? <laughs> in a moment, um, it's something that you've struggled with in order to come to a place where you can theorize about something so broadly. So I was wondering, actually, if you could just speak to us about how you engage with questions of your own power and subjectivity as an Iraqi American. Just tell us a little bit about that journey so that we can better understand Understand the kinds of work that perhaps the rest of us have to do or are trying to do um, in order to get to a place where we can be um, ethical, responsible, and accountable to the people we are working with and for. Sure. Um, there are a couple of subpoints here. Uh, the first is the question of being there. Um, there's so much about um, anthropology that requires physical presence in a place with a people for a certain period of time. Um, and there was a book recently published called A Rock at a Distance about what it means to try and do field work or engage anthropology with, um, within, with Iraqis or in Iraq um, without actually being there. And um, 
it's been a really interesting engagement in the academy of what does it mean to be a prosthetic eye to others, right? I am able to travel in and through Iraq differently than someone who doesn't have an Iraqi last name and doesn't have the decades of connections. Um, and so I don't, I didn't have to do my research at a distance. Um, we are all positioned differently to do different kind of work. So, um, it's been interesting to be other people's point of access or contact and what does it mean to navigate those relationships. Um, and then there's the other question of it being there and um, being absent and the power of being in other places at different periods of time. So one of my um, most fraught engagements during my field work was actually um, doing field work with uh, and interviews with counterterrorism operatives who had worked in Iraq and continued to work in Iraq in order to better understand their strategies and their worldview and how they understood the environment in their work as a way of informing those Anbari families who were seeking strategies to engage and to manage this constant military presence that was shaping their lives. And so not only was my research multi-sided, it was also multi-interest. And managing those relationships, talking to people who kill the people that I love is an interesting and complex positionality that only someone with my particular background could maybe accomplish and therefore was perhaps obligated to do. Um, the people I worked with in Anbar were um, acutely aware of their audience. Um, so I traveled with them and I lived with them and I worked with them um, and they became very invested in what they called the American book. There was no mistaking what my research was supposed to be for and they were very clear on their audience and making sure that I um, took home um, to the U.S. the messages that they wanted to send. So if this book were written for um, a European audience, I think they would have slightly different things to share. So there was something really powerful about their own nuanced understanding of how to instrumentalize me as a researcher, not just in picking the right research questions, but in what kind of messages I brought home at the end. Um, so that's one part of it, the story of being there and being absent and being a vector um, of different kinds of audiences and different kinds of areas and interests. Um, and then the other part is that um, the question of harm and risk calculation is, is really pivotal. So hosting me was not always easy, taking me different places. I traveled mostly from Iraqi Kurdistan into other parts of Iraq, and that was very dangerous the time I was there in 2014 and 2015. And people took great risk to move me with them. Um, and one of the interesting debates at home in the U.S., where my home institution was and where my family was, was the question about risk calculation and what kinds of death an American audience found acceptable for me as an American Iraqi ethnographer and what kinds of death they found acceptable for my interlocutor. So we were separated by the kinds of death that were acceptable in the public view. So um, there was a lot of discussion about the risk of me dying in a, an explosion of some kind or a kidnapping, the kind of violent story that you imagine a a war zone understanding of a place to evoke. Um, but one of the questions I raised um, with, with my committee members and community members was, if we're really worried about an accurate assessment of risk, 
um, I am going to be drinking really dirty water and I'm going to be exposed to carcinogens. Um, people are dying of cancer right and left. What kind of risk mitigation do we need to think of um, given that the environment I'll be working in is incredibly toxic in a carcinogenic way? Um, and what was interesting is that for the most part, um, American audiences seem to be comfortable with or at least accepting of the possibility that my field work exposed me to cancer but less comfortable with the idea that I might die in a violent, explosive way. Um, so those fears and managing those fears is part of managing the incredible privilege of having a life that is valued more highly than others, others with whom I am close to. Um, meanwhile, um, Iraqi people are crossing these borders and moving through these dangerous checkpoints and managing the carcinogenic water, food, air, every single day with very little outrage um, by the American public. And so in some ways, leveraging the presence of my body in a place was a way of drawing attention to the people and places that are so often neglected in the ethical sensibilities of an American public. So I too am acutely aware that my audience is uniquely American in the way that it parses the meaning of risk and harm and particularly in understanding the environment, which is imagined as just an ecological form, I think very often. But the environment is of course so much more than that. It's about social environments and, um, and visual environments and the kind of like sensual material worlds that we build together. And Americans play a very powerful role in shaping the Iraqi life, the Iraqi environment. And um, it would be wonderful if in some ways Iraqi stories are able to somehow shape the social and political, if not the material environment of an American audience. So navigating that's been very important to me um, and has led to some of my work outside of academic research. Yeah, and um, we'd love to hear about that for the closing. When you said the different types of death that people <laughs> found accountable or found um, acceptable, I actually first thought you said the different kinds of debt, DBT, <laughs> um, which I think leads us really well to our final question about the ISLA Reparations Project. Can you tell us about ISLA Reparations Project? How did it come to be? Um, what is reparations work? Um, what are some um, reparations projects that are going on right now that our listeners might be able to connect with? Yes, great question. Um, the ISLA Reparations Project is an old project that came together when um, I and my mom and um, someone named Ross Kapudi, who um, was a U.S. veteran and has uh, and was in Fallujah and has done a lot of work um, uh, speaking truth to power about what it means to be complicit in occupation. Um, and we all converged together and formed a nonprofit that essentially works as a platform to enable those with privilege and power or those who are beneficiaries of empire to actually engage in the process of reparations at the grassroots level. So what that means is um, while we advocate for and push for uh, higher level reparations, right, government level reparations, the exchange of resource, the underlying philosophy is a grassroots one, which is to promote the idea that a radical reallocation of resources and maybe also harm requires an acknowledgement that repair is urgent, 
critical, um, but also that it requires each of us as individuals or communities to take responsibility for our unjust enrichment through the exploitation of others and to do something with and, uh, and about it in a material way. Um, and so in a way it's meant to instigate a paradigm shift from the aid angle. Um, on the other hand, I think that our work has led me to critique the framework of reparations in different ways. For example, reparations as a concept is oriented towards requiring the consent of the oppressor. Um, without that consent, then it's revenge or looting, we might say. Um, and so what does it mean to radically redistribute resources um, in a way that requires those of us who are beneficiaries of an unjust system to agree to that in the first place. So there, there's some flaws with the concept of reparations that I've been enjoying exploring with people um, in many ways that those I work with in Iraq either reject or accept the idea of reparations has been a profound and transformative experience over time. Um, right now, the ISLA Reparations Project works closely with doctors who are trying to better understand the underlying cause of birth defects and hold uh, to account those responsible for um, mass devastation of the Iraqi landscape and environment, um, and also do immediate work to resettle or provide funding for surgeries, for corrective surgeries to those young people who are able to um, access restorative medical care. Um, two of our contemporary projects right now, um, our work is not limited to Iraq at all. We are supporting the Southern Solidarity Movement in New Orleans, which has focused on the unhoused as people who were left abandoned by the stimulus check package um, recently and continue to face um, absolute discrimination and dispossession right now. And also the Palestinian Youth Movement's Barkali Center in San Diego, which serves um, mostly Syrian, but all Middle Eastern refugees more broadly. Um, and these are locally led by different people who are engaged in different projects and give people the opportunity to crowdsource their own resources. So our, our last fundraising drive was to get people who had means to actually reallocate their stimulus checks to these projects that are happening in the United States right now. Um, and we have different projects at different times. Anyone is welcome to create one. The idea is that um, we're working within communities and operationalizing a couple of key underlying tenets of what reparations means and giving people the space to really run with it and see what they can do um, with that framework. Thank you so much, Kali. Um, I think Gabby and I, are, uh, it's going to take us a while to process all the uh, wonderful things that you've taught us today. Um, and especially this last point of a call to action with which perhaps not just uh, we, but also our listeners can participate. Um, thank you so much, Kali. Thank you so much, Gabby, for your phenomenal you, questions. Um, Kali Rubai is an anthropology professor, and we were speaking with her today at Purdue University. We also want to let our listeners know that we welcome your ideas. If you have ideas about programming or you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environment at jadalia.com. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. 
The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.